Uh, turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter six, uh, chapter five. Well, we're going to do five eight through six nine. Uh, and since it's a rather lengthy passage, uh, since we stood for our New Testament reading, I won't have you stand uh, for our, our sermon text this morning. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, and we're going to read through verse 9 of chapter 6. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher And there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. He is father to a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he will go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing Uh, for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honors so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires and yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? 
And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I was um, probably middle school, high school introduced to uh, Jimi Hendrix um, and found a song um, and it's, it's probably it's my favorite Jimi Hendrix song. And it's not your typical, you know, Star Spangled Banner, Wild Wacky Crazy Guitar. It's a real calm, it might be why it's my favorite Jimi Hendrix song. Uh, but it's a song that sings about people who built their lives on hopes and dreams that never actually came to fruition. The song is called Castles Made of Sand. And it describes the life of people who set this hope, this dream, this idea, this plan, this thing out in front of them. And they are convinced that that thing is going to be the thing that makes them happy. It's going to be the thing that makes them content. It's going to be the thing that gives them meaning and purpose in their life. And they never actually get there. They've made their castles, but they made their castles out of sand. And those castles made of sand slip into the sea eventually. It's a song about unfulfilled expectations. Which is exactly what Solomon writes in this passage. He examines our hopes and dreams and expectations and he points out that these things, and he particularly focuses on, on wealth and possessions, on money, and he says these things are not going to do what you think they're going to do for you. They're castles made of sand and they will one day slip into the sea. Solomon gives us a, a warning about the love of wealth and a warning about un unfulfilled expectations. First, uh, the love of money is a sad venture. Uh, look at verses 7 to 9 of chapter 6. Uh, a man works and all the toil is for his mouth. He works to eat and yet his appetite is not satisfied. You know, it's a funny thing. We, uh, we have to eat to stay alive. We have to eat to live. Now, if you don't eat, you eventually are not going to... So you have to eat. And in order to eat, you've got to work because you've got to make money so that you can buy food. Or you have to work in your yard to plant and grow said food so that you can have food to eat. That's part of God's design for us. But I have not yet found the meal that means I never have to eat again. Every meal you eat, you know this is delicious. And you may push back from the table and go, man, I am stuffed. I ate too much. But you're coming back to that same spot again later. And, and that's part of the image in verses 7, 7 to 9 of chapter 6. A man toils, but he toils for his mouth, and yet his appetite is never fully, never completely satisfied. 
Or you can look back at the beginning of the passage, at the beginning in, in chapter 5. And again, he's aware of oppression, verse 8. Um, this time he's sort of looking, he, he's admitting that there's oppression, and he's saying, look, don't be surprised that people mistreat people. He, he doesn't excuse it. He doesn't say it's okay. That's already been dealt with in a, a previous passage. But to make his point, he's, look, don't be surprised that, that people oppress other people. And his, his image is a high official who has an official over him, who has an official over him. And part of his point is all of those people expect to get a cut. And so the low guy has to meet, mistreat the next down guy because he's got to take extra because he knows that the people above him are going to expect to cut. And people are oppressing others because they're only looking out for their own financial gain. The people at the bottom end up missing out. They end up being mistreated so that the people at the top can make their their money can earn their wealth. So there's sadness for those who are oppressed. There's sadness because of the love of money coming from the people above them. But there's also sadness even for those who are doing the oppress, oppressing. Because notice what happens in verses 11 and 12. They can't sleep. They're so full, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I'm going to let this guy just go by. And even the poor sleep fine. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats a little or a lot. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You know how it is. You, you have more stuff, and so there's more stuff to worry about. Or for that matter, you ate such a good, rich, solid meal that it actually gave you indigestion. You physically feel bad. Our wealth causes us to have all sorts of of things to worry about and it even messes with our sleep cycle. The poor, I mean, he may be poor. The laborer may not have as much as the wealth, but at least he sleeps well at night. I, um, when I was growing up, we had this, uh, I'll call it artwork for lack of a better word. Um, in your minds, you're giving it way too much generosity. It was basically a collection of quotes, but it wasn't like even cool written. It was just, you know, it was the 80s, right? Um, and, and, and I remember reading, I used to read those things all the time. The first one said, today is the first day of the rest of your life. The last one said, call your mother. My favorite one was one in the middle. Um, my mom's going to wish that last one was my favorite one. My favorite one was one in the middle that said, you never know how many friends you have until you rent a cottage at the beach. Right? I mean, you get a pickup truck and everybody you know suddenly needs a pickup truck. You rent a cottage at the beach, you get a beach house, you, and suddenly everybody you know wants to come along with you. You never know how many friends you have until you rent a cottage at 
the beach. The more stuff you have, verse 11, the more people there are who suddenly show up around you expecting to benefit from all the stuff their friend has. Notice the way he says it in verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. There are people who want to gather around and expect to benefit from the fruits of your labors. The love of money is a sad venture. If you could, if you'd let me blend St. Augustine and Solomon, uh, St. Augustine described that, that God shaped void in your heart, in your life. And Solomon says, you're taking wadded up $100 bills and trying to stuff them into that void. And they don't fit. They don't do what they're supposed to do. They're not accomplishing what they're supposed to accomplish. The love of money is a sad venture. It's a castle made of sand that will eventually slip into the sea and leave you without the satisfaction and fulfillment and, and meaning and purpose and value that you thought it would give you. But second, the love of money is also a bad venture. You know, it's one thing for, um, for things not to fulfill on their promise, not to bring the good you thought it would bring. But it's a quite a different thing when the thing that you thought would bring you good actually brings you harm. And it does the exact opposite. It's not enough that it just doesn't do what it said it would do or what you thought it would do, what you hoped it would do. It's that it actually does the exact opposite. And Solomon shows us there are dangers and, and he calls them grievous evil. Verse 13, he uses that phrase a couple of times throughout this passage. And he, he describes the dangers um, that, that come along with idolizing money and possessions. Look at verses 13 and 14. Here we go. This grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, riches were kept by their owner, even to his own hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. You've seen this. I mean, just in the first quarter of this year, retirement accounts took a huge hit. Now, I think they recovered in the second quarter, but... Literally, at the end of the first quarter of this year, at least I think it was this year, you literally are looking at that going, that's going the wrong direction. Or 2008 and the whole economic housing bubble, all that crisis that wasn't just here in the States, it was worldwide. And the people whose hopes and dreams were suddenly lost in a moment. They were lost in a bad venture. They, he kept them even to his own hurt. Suddenly, their riches were gone. You know, I, um, I want to be sensitive, but it, it, makes, it, it makes the right illustration. Uh, as a result of the economic crisis in 2008, no less, at least, uh, I could come up with a quick four, 
worldwide financial leaders who took their own life as a result of that loss. Including one who was in a hotel room that cost him $500 a night. The pain, the anguish, the loss of people hoarding and who are building their purpose and value and meaning on riches, on possessions, and suddenly they're lost in a bad venture, Solomon says. There's a second danger, verses 15 and 16 of chapter 5. And the danger is this. You can't take it with you. Say it how you will. You can't take it with you. I've never seen an armored car in a funeral procession. Uh, I've never seen an ATM machine in a graveyard. Um, there, there are all sorts of ways for us to say it. And Solomon simply says, the way you come into the world is the same way you go out. With nothing, wearing nothing. I mean, you're, you come into the world naked and empty-handed and you go out of the world the same way. And for that matter, the rich, the poor, and everyone in between all end up in the same place, he observes. You know, Jesus um, warns us of this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Warns against investing, investing in the things of this world, of laying up treasures on earth because moths show up in your closet and eat your clothes. Because rust eventually eats out that old car you just had to have. Uh, because people break in and, and take your stuff. They'll steal your identity. They don't have to break in anymore. They can do it from the comfort of their own home on their own computer and break in and steal your identity. I frequently tell people I'm not worried about that because nobody would want to be me. Um, but they'll take and then every and all of a sudden they're spending everything on your card and and they've got you know Martin Luther um, questions our wisdom uh, in the way we put our hope and trust and identity in the things of this world. Um, he, he takes a, a jab, I think, both at the goods of this world and at us at the same time. But he, he, he basically asked, what kind of a God is it if it can't even protect itself from a moth? That's no God. That's an astute observation, I think, from Martin Luther. There's a, a third danger uh, of idolizing money. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Solomon sees the person... Uh, to whom God has given great wealth. And, and look, recognize Solomon sees that God is sovereign over our possessions. We have what we have because God has so ordained it. Because God has given it whatever it is. But notice what he also sees. This person doesn't have uh, verse 2 doesn't God doesn't give him the power to enjoy them. You've heard people say things like, 
Money can't buy happiness, but it buys a boat, and boat make, a boat makes me happy. Or money can't buy, you know, whatever, but I, it'll buy that, and then that thing will make me happy. Here's, here's the person that Solomon sees who has great wealth, but who has no ability to enjoy that wealth. And unless God gives that pleasure, if, unless God gives that joy, then anything that money buys is going to leave you empty. It's going to leave you joyless. It's going to be, leave you wondering, well, what's the next thing I've got to get to now make me happy? Because the last three things have failed to do what they were supposed to do. We can be fair, right? I mean... We know plenty of people with plenty of money who, from our perspective, seem absolutely not like any of these people. They seem perfectly happy. They seem perfectly content. They have lots of joy. They're enjoying it. They don't seem to be consumed by it. We know people like that. And, and we have to be careful that we don't make universal platitude statements out of the things Solomon observes. Because even David in the Psalms says, hey, um, God... Could you tell me why the wicked seem to prosper? Like that doesn't seem to make sense. So even David recognizes in the Psalms, recognizes that there are exceptions, that these aren't universal rules that we have to apply in every situation and say, well, if, if we don't see that, then, then this must not be true. That's actually part of Solomon's problem. He's basing his whole concept of his worldview on his observations and the things that he sees. That's why he keeps using the phrase that I have seen under the sun, for example, in verse 1. Under the sun in verse 18 of chapter 5. He limits his observation to the things that he can see. The love of money is a sad venture. The love of money is a bad venture. Finally, where's the wise venture? Right here in the center of our passage, verses 18 to 20 of chapter 5, Solomon sees people who have, better is it. I have seen what is good and fitting, and it is to eat, to drink, to find enjoyment, in the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days that he has of his life. Better to invest in the giver of the gifts than in the gifts themselves. Whatever our lot in life, that lot comes from God. Even Solomon recognizes that even when he doesn't always let that reality affect him it doesn't let him of he doesn't let that truth he doesn't let that recognition affect his view of the world around him it seems that even throughout the book every time you get some positive statement from solomon it's followed by a negative but whatever our lot in life it comes from god whatever the size of your bank account it comes from god whatever your ira looks like it comes from God. Whatever you have in your garage, whatever you have in your house, it, it, it comes from God. And better for us 
to invest in the giver of those gifts than in the gifts themselves. Solomon says, look, our, our days are numbered. Our days are, in reality, few, to use his term in verse 18. In the grand scheme of it, I mean, even for us, somebody lives a really, really, really long time, they're a hundred. In the grand scheme of things, that's a 21st of the New Testament era. I mean, that's, that's not, in the grand scheme of things, that's few. And Solomon says, look, our days are numbered and and." We are all born and we're all going to die. Death is a reality that we all face. And the best we can do is to enjoy the gifts that God has given them as long as He gives them to us. Yes, we toil. Yes, we struggle. We labor for them. The gifts, the toil to get the gifts, the possessions, the power to enjoy them, all that comes from God. They're all in His hands and they're all at His disposal for His glory and not for our own. You know, Jesus picks up on this in the New Testament several times, actually. Uh, You remember the rich young ruler who... Um, is asking God, what do I have to do to be saved? And ultimately, you have to sell everything that you have and go and give it to the poor. And do you remember his reaction? He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus wasn't teaching that we all have to go and sell everything that we have and give it all to the poor. That's not what he meant. What he meant was, you have an idol. And it is your stuff. And as long as you love your stuff more than you love me, that's the thing you've got to get rid of. His love for his possessions prevented him from loving God with all his heart. In in Matthew 6, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns that we can't serve God and money. We can't serve two masters. In Matthew 10, Jesus takes... Our closest, some of our closest earthly relationships. Remember, call your mother was the last thing on the quotes in my house. And he says, if you love your mother or your father, or your son or your daughter, more than you love me, He's not worthy of me. The person that loves father or mother or son or daughter isn't worthy of Christ. In other words, the Bible tells us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To seek first His kingdom and not our own. And to love Him and not the things of this world. The love of money... Is a sad venture. The love of money is a bad venture. And finally we see where the wise venture is. It's in loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's, it's in investing in the giver rather than in the gifts 
themselves. Let me make just two, basically sort of ask two application questions. Um, the first is this. Uh, is, and this. Is the Bible impacting the way we think about everything? Solomon recognizes that God is the giver. And yet he keeps walking away even from that truth with a pessimistic view of the world. In other words, the Bible, God's word, he, Solomon knows there's a great truth out there that God is sovereign over everything. And then he takes that truth and basically throws it on the floor in the corner to let his observations impact the way he builds his worldview. His eyes instruct him rather than God's word. He's, he's half-hearted, which is very much the way Solomon is. The Bible should be our foundation of wisdom and understanding. It's supposed to infiltrate our minds and affect how we think about everything. But a second application more to the point of the passage itself. Do you or will you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? William Law was a, a 18th century English pastor served in Cambridge until uh, King... Uh, I think I know, but if I say it and it's wrong, then I'll get ridiculed, so I won't do it. Um, basically had everybody um, sign uh, um, an oath of allegiance, and he couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it, and so he lost his position. Um, he pointed out, and I was, I was reading uh, C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he's the one that called this to my attention. William Law wrote this. If you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will in the end make no difference what you have chosen instead. May God grant us his grace to love Christ, to pursue him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we recognize that we are uh, given to love the things of this world, uh, that we are given to uh, pursue possess possessions and wealth and, and riches and fame and any number of other things that we might uh, put ahead of you. Would you grant us your grace through the power of your spirit, through your word in our lives uh, to pursue you with greater joy and eagerness? And to the honor of and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.